Last week, we began uh, this book of Malachi, and if you're new around here, we've been in a study for uh, about a year now of the Old Testament minor prophets, of which Malachi is one. There are 12 books in the Old Testament that are called minor prophets, mainly because the books are shorter than some of the major prophets like Isaiah or Ezekiel, who have very long books. Uh, but Malachi is our last in this study, and next week will be our final week uh, after around a year of studying the Minor Prophets. And uh, I'm looking forward to wrapping this up, but it really has been rich and fruitful. I've gotten a lot out of it. I hope the Lord has spoken to you through it as well. Uh, and I'm looking forward to our next study uh, coming up in two weeks, which is the Gospel of John. Um, and it's just going to be, a, a, I think, a fantastic segue to, to wrap up the Old Testament and immediately go into the story of Christ in the Gospel of John. Uh, last week, as we began this book, what we saw was that the book of Malachi is built around six what are called disputations, six disputations. And what happens in each disputation is that the Lord makes a claim and then the people respond disputing his claim. And then the Lord responds to their disputation by correcting their opposition or by giving them some kind of instruction. So God says something, the people say, nah, nah. Right, They respond with some kind of dispute to what the Lord says, and then the Lord responds to them by correcting them in some way. So we looked at the first one, as I said last week, and it was very basic. The disputation was this. God said, I love you to the people of Judah. And the people of Judah respond by saying, how have you loved us? There's this dripping with sarcasm, like, really, God, you love us? And, and they say that because they look around at their land. They've returned from exile in Babylon, but they are a subservient people to the Persian Empire. They don't have a powerful nation anymore. They don't have a monarchy anymore. Like all of these things that they once had during the time of like King David are gone. And so they look around at their nation and they go, you love us? Like explain that to us, God, because... There are all of these things that we want that we don't have. But God's response to them is a little bit seemingly enigmatic. God says, isn't Jacob Esau's brother? But what God means by this is, I have sustained the nation of Judah who are the descendants of Jacob. And as we said last week, if there is any nation that should just be gone, it should be Israel. When you look back throughout the history of Israel and the number of times that they've been conquered and the fact that throughout much of their history, they were not like a military superpower, like the sheer fact that they even still exist in some form or fashion at this point, God says, that is all because of me. He says, isn't Jacob Esau's brother? So God has sustained Jacob, which he promised to do way back in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. But Esau and his descendants, Jacob's brother, are gone. The nation of Edom, which came from the descendants of Esau, are gone. And we've seen that throughout the study of the minor prophets, that Edom came in with the Babylonians and assisted in the destruction of Jerusalem, only to have the Babylonians later turn on them and wipe them out. 
And yet somehow Judah is still here. Somehow the Israelites are still here. So God says, I have shown my love to you by remembering my covenant with you and preserving you in spite of your sin, in spite of the ways that you've turned your back on me, in spite of the ways that you've worshipped false gods. Judah should also be gone, but God loved them. But that didn't fully compute to the people. As I said, because they, they didn't have everything they wanted. Just existing wasn't the end goal to them. They wanted to be a great nation again. They wanted wealth. They wanted power. They wanted freedom. And the danger of wanting things like that is that in the absence of them, the people had concluded that God didn't love them. That those things were the things that were signs of his love. And what we said last week is that we are prone to do the exact same thing. We are so quick to forget or ignore all of the wonderful, gracious, generous things that God has done in our lives. When there is something we want that we're not getting. When there's something we want we're not getting, we forget about all the good things we already have because we become inordinately focused on what we don't have. And we also can conclude that when we don't have what we want, that maybe God doesn't love us, or maybe God's absent from my life, or maybe he's not even real. And in many ways, it's like a form of spiritual pouting, right? I'm going to go sit in the corner and pout because even though God's given me incredible things, including his only son, I don't have what I want right now. And this is why remembering the gospel is so important. It's why we need each other, the community of the church to remind us of the gospel. It's why we need to hear the gospel often, even if we already know it. It's why we need to get better at preaching the gospel to ourselves and our own hearts. And by the gospel, I don't, I don't simply mean the story of Jesus. I also mean the ramifications of the story of Jesus in your life. Paul says in Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, what? Christ died for us. How does God show his love to us? He shows his love to us in that even though we were sinners, Jesus died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, Paul says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So Paul says it was by no merit of our own that Christ died for us. In fact, it was in spite of the fact that we were sinners that he went to the cross for us. And now, through his death, we have been justified, or we have been made right before a holy God, which means we have been saved from his wrath towards sin. We were enemies of God, Paul says, but now, because of Christ, we are no longer enemies. And if God loved us that much when we were enemies, just think at how much he loves us now that we are reconciled to him. That's what he's getting at here. If he would do that for us when we were opposed to him, then what do we have now? So we should be walking in light of that truth. We should be walking in this perpetual state of awe and wonder and gratitude at what God has done for us. But both you and I know 
that that is easier said than done, and that finding that kind of gratitude can be a continual struggle, can it? But it's not because there's something wrong with God or, or, or because God hasn't done something for us or that because he hasn't given us what we need, what we said last week is that he has prospered us in every way possible through the gift of his son. That there is no other way that we could be more prospered. And yet... Even though Christ has saved us, we still live in this broken world. We still wrestle with the effects of sin, even though we are saved from God's wrath towards sin. We wrestle with it. None of us are perfectly Christ-like. We're we're all progressively being sanctified, or we're being made like him slowly over time. So much like the Israelites, in spite of the incredible things that God has done for us, we have a tendency to grumble against God. Do you remember the story of Israel coming out of Egypt, being saved by God? The Red Seas parted. Moses leads them out. The armies of Pharaoh are vanquished, and yet they get out into the desert, and they're hungry, and they begin to grumble, Scripture says. They begin to grumble against God, like, God, you've just brought us out here to die. After everything they had just seen, This may be something that you guys are familiar with, but this is a concept called uh, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And this is sort of a simplified version of it. Um, And and, uh, Abraham Maslow was a psychologist, early 1900s. This was something that he proposed, and it has really become a part of the vernacular, particularly here in America. And... The way that he viewed this was at the foundation of things we need as human beings in our lives. At the bottom of this was what we could basically call body needs, bodily needs, food, water, shelter, warmth, rest. I mean, just like the most foundational stuff. If I am going to continue to exist as a person, I I need these things down here. After that, he said the next step was basically safety needs, right? I need to be protected on some level, right? I need to not get mauled by a bear, right? I need to not get attacked by my enemies. I need to be safe. So foundation, body, water, food, shelter, safety. Yeah, absolutely. We all need these things. But next up the ladder is... Um, belonging Um, and love. And by love, we don't just mean like romantic love. Like we need to have intimate relationships. I think COVID has made this very clear, especially to people who've had to quarantine for long periods of time or who've had to work from home isolated for long periods of time. Is Even if you're not like an extrovert or even if you don't think of yourself as a like people person, one of the things you've probably realized is, no, 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 I actually do need to be around other people. I need to be in like physical relationship, physical proximity to other people. This is actually something I need if I'm not just going to exist, but I'm going to thrive on some level. And, and then it, it goes up from there, and, and the next rung is, is something like esteem. Um, 
Like, I need to know on some level that I matter. Uh, I maybe need to feel some level of accomplishment in life. Um, And then at the very top is what he called self-actualization. Self-actualization, which um, could be defined as like achieving your full potential. Achieving your full potential. So, So... What I said a minute ago is that we're a lot like Israel in that when we don't get what we want, when we want it, we can have a tendency to grumble against God. And yet what I want us to see is that the things that we need are very different from the things that Israel needed when they came out of Egypt. So what did Israel most need when they came out of Egypt? They needed food and water and shelter, and they needed safety, because as soon as they got out into the desert, they start getting attacked by other people groups. I mean, it happens very quickly. So they're not warriors. They've been slaves for 400 years. They've been building the great monuments in Egypt, and yet now all of a sudden they're out here and they're having to fight against other tribes, other people groups. So they need just to exist the most basic human needs, right? But they didn't always get what they wanted. God knew they needed those things, and he gave them the things that they needed. But it doesn't mean that they didn't experience any discomfort. No, they experienced a lot of discomfort, didn't they? They experienced, Scripture says, the testing that comes from going without. And yet God always sustained them. And, and what's so interesting when you read the story is, I mean, the, the Lord literally makes this bread-like substance appear on the ground every single morning. Like, it is just there. Um, they called it manna, which means something like, what is it? <laughs> right? Because it's, it's not bread, but it's, you know, but it's sustaining us. And there's this miraculous thing happening every single morning when we get up. And yet after eating this sort of bland uh, you know, what is it for a few days? Some we go, well, thanks, thanks for this, God. You know, not ungrateful, but could it taste a little bit better? Could it be this? What if it was this? Here's what I really want, right? Do you understand what's happening there? So something amazing and miraculous is happening, and yet very quickly the people are discontent with it. And their needs were the most foundational. Our needs, however, are very different, aren't they? We all have food, we all have shelter, we all have safety. If you are in this room this morning, you have friends, you have relationships, there are people that love you, even if you don't want to receive that love, there are people that love you in your life. What you may not have, though, is the feeling of accomplishment that you desire in life. Or a sense that you're like achieving your full potential. Like that, that I, man, I'm doing exactly what I was made to do. And here's the point. When there is something that I want or need that I feel like I'm not getting, I'm prone to immediately forget all of the other things that I already have. We're literally living at the top of the pyramid And we very quickly forget about the bottom of the pyramid to the point that we feel entitled to these things. I 
I'm prone to immediately forget what God has done, prone to forget that there are people around the world who are living in a state where self-actualization isn't even a thought. Achieving what I want to achieve in life isn't even a thought because we're just trying to survive to tomorrow. We're trying to figure out how to get food or find shelter. Uh, by the way, the hierarchy of needs, not necessarily a biblical concept, by the way. Um, I think scripture uh, would certainly affirm basic human needs at the bottom of the pyramid, but the higher we get up in this pyramid, I think scripture would put these things more into the category of want than like true human need. Um, I think scripture would say that it is far more important that I live in the light of Christ's realized potential, that I live in the light of Christ's achievement on the cross, that it's far more important that that's the thing that brings me purpose and meaning than it is that I find that somehow in my own life. That's not to say that God doesn't have plans and purposes for your life, but that all of those things are to be lived in the light of Christ's realized purpose. That what Jesus has achieved is greater and better and far beyond anything that I could ever do, and any hope that I could have for the future is going to be found in his achievement, not just in some achievement that I could accomplish. So, so hopefully, guys, this can help you contextualize a little bit your grumbling, my grumbling. Recognize everything that you do have, everything God has done for you. Um, and with those things in mind, let's look at today's text, Malachi 3. Uh, we're going to jump into the fifth disputation here in Malachi. Malachi 3, starting in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers I have turned aside from my statutes. You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. So this fifth disputation has a direct connection to the second disputation, which comes at the end of chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. But at the end of chapter 1, God says to the priests of the temple, you have despised my name. And they say, how have we despised your name, God? And God says, you've offered polluted food on my altar. 
And the point God is making to the priests is that while you guys are going through the motions of religious ritual, you are not taking care to truly follow my commandments. So they're effectively worshiping and sacrificing in whatever way they want rather than in the way that God has commanded them. And in God's eyes, that's not real worship. In other words, their worship was more about them than it was about God. So in that second disputation, the focus is on the clergy, it's on the priests and their error. But here in chapter 3, the focus is on the people who are also not doing what the Lord has commanded. They're doing their own thing as well, which is they've stopped tithing. They've stopped bringing in their contributions to the temple. And for both the priests and the people, the focus is on what is being offered to the Lord in worship. With the priests... They're sacrificing whatever animals they want. And what that means is that they're normally sacrificing animals that are sick or old or gimpy, like they're not bringing their best to the Lord. And here's the underlying thought. Why give God our best when we can save it for ourselves? Why give God our best when we can save it for ourselves? Why give God my best lamb when I can have it? Why give God my money when I can spend it? The people are doing that exact same thing. The law of Moses commanded them to bring a tithe to the temple. As you guys, I'm sure know, the tithe was 10% of what they earned from the land. Um, You can read more about that in detail in Leviticus 27. But recognize that this was an agrarian society. So often, the tithe wasn't necessarily cash money, right? They weren't coming and writing a check and putting it in the offering plate. They were bringing their crops. They were bringing grain. They were bringing animals. They were bringing wine. They were bringing oil. And and here's God's view. This tenth of the land, this tithe, it isn't something I want you to give to me. It's already mine. That's God's perspective. It is mine You're just holding it. You're stewarding it. And so in God's economy, if you don't give him what is already his, then what does he say? You are robbing me. Because you're taking what is actually mine. Now we're going to talk a little bit about tithing today, and we're going to talk about some of the ramifications of that, but the point of this is not necessarily tithing. Like, Like, And we'll ask that question, is this something we still have to do? We'll try to answer that. But don't miss the bigger point here. With the priests and with the people, there are things that God desires from everyone engaged in the act of worship. In other words, number one, worship is primarily primarily about God and what he wants, not about us and what we want. Worship is about God and what he wants, not primarily about us and what we want. If our worship doesn't begin with the question, what does God want from me? Then it's quite possible that we're not really worshiping. If you come into corporate worship or or even personal worship thinking only of what you want from him, then you probably aren't worshiping. And I think one of the big revelations of Malachi is this. As a people, we can be inordinately focused on what we want or what we don't have, and often we can direct anger or frustration or apathy toward God for not giving us what we want, when all along, God is trying to help us see that there are things he wants from us first. 
Did you notice that Malachi repeated Zechariah's words, which were what? Return to me, and I will return to you. When we were studying the book of Zechariah, we saw all of these conditional statements where God said, if you will do this, then I will do this. And I hope you notice today what God is saying in our, in our brief little text, which is, the reason why your land is not flourishing in the way you want, the reason why you don't have the things you want, is because you are not worshiping me as the Lord and master of your life. You are not being obedient to me in the way that I've called you to be obedient to me. If I really am your Lord and master, then your primary desire should be to do what I want above what you want. And that is what it means to worship a king. Like if he really is the king, if my life is truly lived in submission to him, then it's all about his will. God, not my will, but your will be done, right? So recognize that this is not simply about money. Even though he mentions tithing, we associate tithing primarily with money. This, this people would have associated it more with the produce and products of their agrarian society. It's about obedience. That's the point, obedience. But... Our money can be one of the areas of our lives that we are least likely to be obedient with, right? They were down here, so, you know, the fattened calf, my grain, my oil, my wine, like, these are my basic needs. And they were just as unlikely to be open-handed with those things as many of us are to be open-handed with our finances, Number two, money can become an opposing God that is also vying for your worship. Money can become an opposing God that is also vying for your worship. And it is a false God that Jesus seemed to think was a huge danger. As you've probably heard before, Jesus talked about money a great deal. But to me, the quintessential statement is in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 24 says this, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. And that really sums it up. And here's my, here's my hypothesis for what I think is going on. The person or the thing that you view as the source of your foundational needs, these things, will become the person or thing that you functionally worship. The person or thing that you view as the true source of your foundational needs will become the person or thing that you functionally worship. If you honestly view God as being the source of your food, your shelter, your safety, then you are far more likely to be concerned that you are living a life that's obedient to him. Whereas if you see yourself or other people or even money itself as being the real source of your food, shelter, and safety, you are far more likely to devote yourself to those things. And here's the deal. The God that you serve 
shapes the things that you want. The God that you serve shapes the things you most want. Whatever you're devoted to shapes what you want. It shapes what you desire. Because you and I naturally want more and more of whatever we deem to be God. So if money is my God, guess what? I want more of it. And if the more I serve that God, the more I I want it to not just meet my foundational needs, the more I actually want it to help me find purpose and meaning and value in life. So making, having, spending, accumulating money can become my perceived path to self-actualization. American businessman John D. Rockefeller is like a case study in this. At the peak of his wealth, he had a net worth of roughly 1% of the entire U.S. economy. He owned around 90% of the entire oil and gas industry at the time. And when asked how much money was enough money, he famously responded, just a little more. (laughs) Just a little more. And this is what scripture calls the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of wealth, which is the illusion that having a little more or giving a little more of my soul to it will finally satisfy me. But the problem with false gods is that they never come through. They never actually satisfy. Whereas Jesus says that he is living water and that those who drink will never thirst again. That somehow Jesus is this source. He is this God that will quench the things that we most long for. So in Judah, during the time of Malachi, you have priests, you have people who are going through the motions of worship, but it's just sort of empty ritual. We're doing this however we want to do it. We're not paying attention to what God has asked of us or required of us because our concern is not that he would be pleased. Our concern is that we would be pleased. Their desire isn't even to live a life that aspires to be pleasing to the Lord. So so how, in today's world, how do you worship the true king? Not these false gods. How do we worship the true fount of every blessing? And, And the first thing I want to say is we pursue obedience to Christ. Obedience is something that comes up over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible. If you begin at the beginning and you read all the way to the end, what does God want of us? He wants us to be obedient to him. What is God's vision for my life? Who does he want me to be? What does he want me to do? Like like me achieving the things that he has set for me is not just about what I want out of this life or what I think will be meaningful. It is all about what he has for me. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So he has purposes for you and your life that he wants you to discover and step into. But they're his purposes. It's as much about obedience as it is anything else. It's not about you just doing the things that you think will be good. So we pursue obedience through Christ. And it's that through Christ peace that is key here. This obedience is through faith in Christ. It begins 
with faith in Christ. And outside of Jesus, we have no ability to be obedient to him. Outside of Christ, we have no ability to please him. And so we pursue that through asking those questions of the scriptures. Like if we truly want to know what God desires or what God is like, or what God wants for my life, but we're unwilling to read the scripture or study the scripture, then what are we going to do? Are you waiting for me to tell you what God's purpose is for your life? Like, we have to seek him. And we do that together, yes, but we also do that by going to his word and mining the depths and the riches of it. But it is only through Christ that we can be obedient. It is only through Christ that we could even please him. And then secondly, in obedience, we lay before him what is already his. And what is his? Everything. This is the case that the Bible makes. Deuteronomy 10, 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Everything is the Lord's. Anything that you have is actually his. And so third, we are to live as if he is truly king of everything. You know, Jesus, uh, he has a few parables that relate to this. Um, There are things like the parable of the talents. This idea that God is this master who gives to his servants different gifts, different abilities, um, different amounts of money. And that his desire is not that we would take those things and go, "What what do I think is best with these things? How can I use these things to most please me? but that we take the things that he's given us, recognizing I might have more of something than somebody else. This person might have more of something than I do. But to take those things and ask the question, how can I use these things in a way that would be pleasing to him? And so the word we use is stewardship, right? I don't, I don't want to control these things. These things are not actually mine. I, I want to steward these things for his glory. And, and, and what glorifies him? Well, it's where we began our service today, Right? The Shema, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself. And so when I look at the things of my life and I recognize that all of these things actually belong to the Lord, he's entrusted them to me. The question I'm asking is, how can I use these things to love him and love my neighbor as myself? And here's the thing. If I take the things he's given me and I use them 100% on myself, then I've missed it, right? I've missed it. And so we live in obedience, in light of Christ. We live as if he is truly king of everything. And I think what Jesus holds up for us is what I would call whole life generosity. Not this idea that, hey, 10% of what I have is for the Lord. I put it in an offering plate, and then I've got 90% to do whatever I want with. But instead, everything I have belongs to the Lord, and I'm called to live in an open-handed way because what I recognize is he's an endless source of provision, right? And and so if, if, if I'm living in fear that I'm going to not be provided for, then, then I'm not living 
in, in belief that he truly is the Lord and master of my life. I'm, I'm living in belief that maybe I'm the Lord and master of my life and I've got to go out and find this stuff again or work for this stuff again. Are you guys following me? This is, this is the trap here. Everything is God's. The whole concept of the tithe was that the people would view what they had as coming from the Lord and as belonging to the Lord and that they would be quick to return not just some of it, but the best of it to him. So as to perpetuate the ministry of the temple. And, and this was God asking the people to do what he is asking us to do even now. To trust him. To trust him. His desire was that the people would trust him more than their money, more than their uh, oil, uh, more than their grain. And that they would truly believe the promise that he had made to never leave them or forsake them. This is why Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is why God wouldn't let the people just collect as much manna as they wanted to and put it into big storehouses because it went bad the next day. God wanted the people to trust that every morning when I wake up, there's going to be bread on the ground. And to not hoard it, to not look out for number one, but to instead say, God is the one who owns all of this and holds all of it. So should we tithe today? Well, of course, because everything still belongs to the Lord. And he still wants you to trust him more than you trust your money or yourself. And we evidence that by giving it away. Do you have to give it all to the church um, I don't know that the scripture says that explicitly. Certainly in the Old Testament, um, the people were called to give it to the ministry of the temple. But the New Testament does speak a great deal about us caring for one another and, and sacrificially giving so that the ministry of the church through the people of the church can be perpetuated. I do think there's scriptural precedent for that. But even more than that, I think the example that Jesus sets for us is that we would be a people who go, what I have is the Lord's, and so what I have is yours. Because I haven't obtained it for myself. Deuteronomy 8 says, beware. Beware, lest in your heart you say, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you, you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. Beware, lest you look around at the things you have and go, this is all because of me. And inadvertently, functionally, you become your own God. But let us not forget, guys, as I close, we are to be open-handed with what we have, not so that we can get something from God, but because of what he has already given us through Christ. And what we said last week was that because of Christ, we have already been prospered. No matter what material things we have or how much money we have, 
or how impoverished we might be. We cannot be more prosperous than we already are in Christ because our future is sealed and secured as beloved children of the King who will live with him eternally, who will dine at his table, who will have their sins removed, who will be made right before him forever. And that, my friends, makes us beyond wealthy, and it makes him more than worthy of our devotion, our obedience, our generosity, our worship, the whole of our lives. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And we pray uh, this morning, Father, that your word will not return void, God, that it will plumb the depths of our hearts, God, that it will expose uh, the functional gods that we are inclined to bow down before. We might call them idols, the things that can become our primary uh, north stars of obedience, the things we most want to serve, the things we most want to give ourselves to. Father, would you awaken us all this morning to the beauty of your gospel and to the fact that you have more than provided for us even now. God, that there is nothing we lack, there is nothing we need. You have blessed us in abundance and you have called us to steward your resources with open hands, recognizing, God, that you are an endless source. As the scripture says, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. And may we so believe that and so trust that that we lack fear or anxiety in giving those things back to you when you call us. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive to the leading of your spirit. Help us to be wise. But Father, call us in your grace to obedience. And we lay everything at your feet, the best of the best, because you are more than deserving and more than worthy. In the name of Jesus, amen. Stand with us.